Last week, I uh, preached a message. I think the title was Finding the Facts to Face the Future. And we certainly do need the truth if we're going to be triumphant over the trials and the tribulations that's headed our way. We sometimes think, well, boy, it's really bad now. Well, like the old saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, it, yeah. We've got it really, really good compared to the rest of the world, and we ought to be thankful for that. The problem is, you know, whenever we consider all of the conditions of the world, we preachers are, uh, it's tough sometimes uh, because, you know, we feel that need to address problems like that and uh, and to an extent, we have to do that. We live in a day, though, where there's many, many false teachers, and people need to be warned of that. And the problem is that some folks, uh, well-intended, good men, go overboard, and they spend all of their time preaching about correcting the conditions of our culture. And, and let me tell you, that always fails. I can remember uh, preaching a series on communism and Satanism 45 years ago or, or more. And uh, there were radio broadcasts back then that just focused on those subjects. And guess what? It's worse today than it, than it was back then. Another problem, though, is that a lot of preachers today... Uh, that don't do that, they're geared toward addressing man's needs, his wants, his desires, and uh, they know people don't want to hear about all that negative stuff, and so consequently they, uh, they talk about the benefits and the happiness that they can have here on earth and how they can have their best life now. They can be happy in this wicked world. Now, in both instances, the sad thing is that the main thing is neglected. And the main thing is this. Listen carefully. The main thing always is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's always the main thing. And uh, I, I think I mentioned last week that... Uh, that I, I've got about five or six different series of messages that, that I'd like to preach, knowing that physically I, 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 I can't do what I want to do uh, right now, uh, may never get to do what I want to do, uh, but if I don't do that, I'm going to try to spend some time writing some things, and uh, which I've intended to do for a lot of years, and some way or another something always gets in the way. But I can honestly say this, that there is absolutely nothing more important than what I'm going to be preaching this morning. It's not because of me, it's because of what the Word of God says. Because when we preachers get out of balance on the hand of trying to fight against the problems, or we get on the other extreme of trying to give everybody what will make them feel good and be happy, we've neglected the most important thing which in essence is the gospel, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that is sad beyond measure. Someone said, and I want you to listen carefully, turn to Luke chapter 23, and I'll 
be there in a minute, but someone said, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place where it must be. I fear the gospel. We would never dare, you know, as preachers to dismiss it. We know better than that. But some way or another, we kick it to the curb. We get to preaching about this and that and 411 different things, and we lose our focus on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 23, I can't read this chapter without trying to picture the situation and thinking about those that were there and try to put myself in their place. You think about the fact that uh, the Lord's just gone through that excruciating night of uh, pain and prayer and now he's falsely accused. Verse 1 says, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. Boy, I'll tell you, the religious elite of that day is determined that they're going to get rid of him. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. Now keep in mind, in the beginning, on religious grounds, they opposed him that, you know, he claims to be God and we, he needs to be put to death. But now all of a sudden they're making their appeal to the Roman authorities and they say, we found this fellow perverting the nation like they really cared. They hated the Romans that ruled over them. And forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Boy, that got Pilate's attention. Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked and saying, Art thou king of the Jews? And he answered and said, Thou sayest it. <laughs> Boy, did, did he ever. Now, I don't need to read the rest of the chapter, although it would do us good. From one trial to another we see him. Each time... Pilate and Herod both saying we can't find any fault in this man. Verse 21, And they cried saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And verse 33 is where our text is found. But when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Before I get into the message, I want to say three things. Number one, I hope that every person here has heard everything I say before. I hope, I hope if you're here that this is something that you've heard before. You know, preachers... And not only the preachers, the people, a lot of times they, they want to hear something new. Uh, you know, I've heard that before. I already know that, you know, why, why are you dealing with that? I'm very familiar with those facts going to something else. 
that puts pressure on the preacher naturally that, well, you know, they're going to get tired of this subject. And, and uh, so preachers just have a tendency to try to find something new. I've heard some of those sermons where they make title, uh, uh, shadows and types out of everything under the sun. There are shadows and types in the Bible, but boy, I'm telling you, there's some preachers that have gone wild with that and it's stuff they make up just to make you think they found something nobody else ever discovered. I know because I've seen it, I've heard it. But I hope, I hope you've heard all of this before. Number two, I hope that although you know everything I say, that you realize that you need to hear it again. It's nothing new to you, but you need to hear it again. That wouldn't be true of all sermons, by the way. But it's certainly true of this one. Number three, I also hope that if you're unsaved, that the truth of this message will pierce your heart like Brother John was praying, that it'll pierce your heart and it'll bring you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at four words in verse 33. This is our text this morning. Four words. There, they, crucified him there they crucified him that identifies the place where it occurred notice just up in the verse it says the place which is called Calvary there at Calvary there you could say in Palestine this is the center of the earth this is the cradle of civilization Ezekiel in fact in chapter number 38 speaks about it being in the midst of the midst of the land. That literally that word means the navel, the very center of the earth. The Mediterranean Sea, for example, the word Mediterranean comes from two words. It's the middle and terra, which is the earth. It's the cradle of civilization. And it's only fitting that this took place at the very center of the earth the cradle of civilization, because this act of redemption is for all mankind. There in Palestine, there, it's not just in Palestine, but it's in Jerusalem. This is the center of the land. This is the hub of activity. Originally it was called Salem, which means what? Peace. And they had anything but peace. And they have never had peace there. And they'll never have peace Until Jesus reigns as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. There, Palestine, Jerusalem. This is the place Jesus wept over. He was heartbroken because they had rejected Him. And in doing so, brought condemnation upon themselves. There, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, but not just at Jerusalem, but... Calvary. This is one of the mountains there in the land of Moriah. Maybe you're thinking, well, I've heard that name before. Yes, you have. That's where Abraham took his son Isaac there up on Mount Moriah. You know the story. And in place of a lamb, 
Think about it. Your daddy takes you up on a mountain to make a sacrifice. And the son says, Daddy, where's the lamb? And never forget these words in Genesis 22. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. To think about the father's willingness to sacrifice his son, but the willingness of the son to be the sacrifice. My daddy had told me, come on outside and I'm going to slit your throat. I tell you what, I'd been running in the other direction as fast as I could go, but that wasn't the case there. The son yielded to the desire of the father and the father to the desire of God. And it was there, Calvary, Mount Moriah, Golgotha to be more specific. That was the Hebrew word that means the place of the skull. It wasn't only just shaped like a skull, but it was the place where executions were carried out in that day. Why would they take this sinless man to a place like that. And keep in mind, there also implies that it was outside the camp. In fact, Hebrews 13, 12 tells us it was outside the camp. You know, those within the camp of Israel, they enjoyed all of the privileges, all of the blessings of being a part of that commonwealth. But to be banished from the camp, That's where they burned the leftovers of the sacrifices that were made. You could call it the garbage dump out there. They took him outside the camp. And in doing so, it's a type of the the Lamb of God that was slain. There. And notice the people involved. They... That one word there, if we just really get technical, could refer to a lot of different people. It certainly, it certainly applied to the Jews, did it not? After all, John chapter 1 says, He came into His own, and His own received Him not. His own people that had looked for Him, His own people who had offered up sacrifices that were, were typified Him, that had studied the Scriptures year after year after year, the very Scriptures that testify of Him, and now here they are falsely accusing Him. I mean, after all, what more evidence could they possibly want than what they've already been given? And yet they despised Him. They rejected Him. They demanded that He be crucified. They didn't just make a suggestion. They're making a demand that if you don't crucify Him, there's going to be rioting in the streets. The Jews, they crucified Him. That would include Judas who sold Him for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, supposedly one of His own. That would include Pilate, who although he said, I find no fault in this man, yet he delivered the death order for him to be put to death. Let me tell you folks, you can't be neutral in this matter. Pilate said, I'll just wash my hands of the whole thing. This is all on you. Oh, no, it's not. You see, this was a political decision on the part of Pilate. Because before, Pilate and Herod didn't get along. 
Well, Herod, uh, he's strutting about like he's the king of Galilee, and here poor old Pilate, he's just a governor, and they don't like each other, they don't get along. Pilate probably wanted his position. But after, after Christ was crucified, the Bible, they got along fine then. Politics is involved in this. The Jews, Judas, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, they had no concern for justice whatsoever. You say, oh yeah, but they were forced to obey orders. You, let me tell you something, there comes a time whenever the line between right and wrong has been abused and you know you're in the wrong, you'd be a fool to go ahead and obey any order that man ever gave you. You say, yeah, but I, I'm a... says in Hebrews chapter number 2 that he tasted death for every man. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Is the microphone on of all he's times he's for some bringing you another one. Huh? Bringing you Just bring me a handheld mic. Just give me a handheld one. You might know you're preaching on the cross Something's going to happen that shouldn't happen. Somebody just bring me a handheld mic, please. evil, but God's going to use this Amen. for good. Amen. So, Amen. Is my microphone on? Some way, God will end up using it for good. I, I don't know how. Romans 5, 8. We're talking about the fact that when Jesus was crucified, the Jews were guilty, Judas was guilty, Pilate was guilty, the Roman soldiers were guilty, but you're just as guilty. I'm just as guilty. Amen. And yet the Bible says that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us are you kidding me 
what kind of what kind of a God is that that knowing that we are responsible for this, knowing that we have sinned and violated all of his commands, knowing that yet he died for us. Let me read you something someone said. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Indeed, Christ died on the cross. That was for us. That's true. But it was because of us. Had it not been for us, there would have been no need for all of the suffering, all of the agony, all of the pain, everything that He went through. You're guilty. And yet God says, I love you anyway. And I'm going to give my very best. Now look at the pain that was inflicted. There they crucified Him. You know, usually in that day, stoning was the, was the regular means of punishment that was employed by the Jews. The Gentiles crucified their victims. They executed slaves, for example, or the very worst of the criminals. Only the Roman citizens were exempt from something as horrible as this. But this was something entirely different, entirely new. Concerning the Jewish people, they'd just stone you to death out in the street, drag your body out to the dump and leave you there. They wanted him crucified because that was considered in in reality is the most horrible form of death possible. Over the years, I've read several different physician accounts where they go into great detail describing exactly what happens to the the blood system and all of the systems and how they shut down and the agony and all of that. And I'll tell you, I've reached a point where I'm no longer comfortable in doing that. I'll just stick with what the Bible says instead of what some physician tries to describe. After a night of intense prayer where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, Taken from one mockery of a trial to another, his beard was plucked from his face, smitten, scourged, crowned with thorns, beaten with a rod, nailed to a cross and suspended between heaven and earth. The Bible says that all of the joints of his body were dislocated that his visage was marred more than any man. You, in other words, you're looking and you couldn't recognize him. Tortured. Beaten with a cat of nine tails. Uh, muscles in his back would be hanging like blood-red icicles. and No one could even recognize him. Then after... The darkness. And after six long hours of suffering, he died. Willingly died. And everything that I've described for you from the Bible 
isn't the worst part of it. The worst part, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, when that canopy of darkness was pulled over the earth, at that point, God the Son was separated from God the Father for the first time in all of eternity. And the sheer agony of being made such a sacrifice, because let me tell you, that's what hell is all about. Hell is not about the flames of fire and the brimstone. Hell is not about the company you keep. Hell is you being separated from God. And during that great separation between the Father and the Son, as bad as the crucifixion was, that suffering would have been even worse than anything man could have done. And yet, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that the Father was well pleased. Why? He was well pleased because it was at that time where he tasted death for every man, every person. There, they, you and I, crucified him. Since none of us are perfect, we all have to carry the weight of our responsibility in that matter. That he died for us, but the most important part, I guess, is the person. It's not just about the place and the people and the pain, but the person we're talking about. Notice him. Who is he? He's the, the redeemer of the world, and yet he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He's the fountain of living water, and he hung there and tried eye thirst. He's the light of the world, but he hangs there for three long hours in total darkness. He's the giver of life, and yet he pours out his soul unto death. He was sinless, but crucified between two thieves. He's altogether lovely, the Bible says, but he hath no form nor comeliness. His visage marred more than any man. He who is called the Ancient of Days was cut off in the middle of his years. The friend that sticks closer than a brother is despised and rejected by men. The line of the tribe of Judah is there on that cross dying as a lamb that's been led to slaughter. What Jesus suffered is beyond comparison. No one has ever even touched the hem of the garment in regards to suffering such as Jesus did. It's beyond any comprehension. It's beyond any comparison. And to think about the fact that he did that for you, he did it for every single person. That pictures the, the greatness of God's love for fallen man. God so loved the world, what did he do about it? He gave his only begotten son. And the question for us today, just like it was with Pilate, when he said, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? What, what, what am I going to do with him? Let me tell you, each one of us has to answer to God for our answer to that. 
And your answer will determine your eternal destiny. You can't be neutral. You will either receive him or you will reject him. So let me ask you the question. What does his sacrifice mean to you? How does it affect your life? If you're here today and you've never received Christ, if you're here and you're unsaved, this is a message of salvation for you because it's the only means whereby you can receive the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. That song... I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's true of every child of God. That's all we are, sinners saved by grace. Not one of us is going to be able to strut up and down Hallelujah Avenue boasting about what we've done and who we are and what we know or anything else. We'll fall at the feet of Jesus and thank him for the price that he paid. If you're here today and you've never, oh, you said, "What well, I'm a church member. I've got, got it all. Don't worry about me. I'm more than worried about you if that's all you are, a church member, because that's not going to get you to heaven. Jesus said it, ye must be born again. That is a spiritual birth. It's not reformation where you just straighten up and fly white, fly right, more than that it's something that happens inside in your spirit and in your soul because at this moment as an unsaved person you see God made man body soul and spirit and your spirit part is dead because it's separated from God and that's why the Bible talks about the spirit of God quickening that is making us alive when God saved me he didn't take any scars off of my body. He didn't exempt me from any sickness. He didn't change any of that. When God saved me, he didn't pay any of my debts. He didn't do any of that. But there's one debt he paid, and that is the debt of sin, the forgiveness of sins. And every Christian, if they're truly saved, every person here that's born again can tell you that before they trusted Jesus Christ, that moment before, they did so because they realized that they were a vile, filthy sinner in the sight of God and in no way deserved to go to heaven. If you're here today and you don't think that, then I can tell you you've never been saved. Until we see ourselves as God sees us as sinners, we'll never be saved. And I want you to know that you can change that today. Jesus can change that. He died for you. This isn't just a message of salvation for those that are unsaved. It's a, it's a motivation for service to those who are saved. Paul dealt a lot with that. The reason that he did what he did. I'm just convinced since he died for me that I ought to live for him. He paid my sin debt. I ought to do what I can to serve him. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, and that he died for all. You believe that, don't you? He died for all. That they which live, are you alive? Pulse beating? 
And they that live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Let's face it, that's what most people have been doing all of their life, living unto themselves. Nobody else matters. It's just me, number one, let's have fun kind of a deal. But Paul says, since he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Let me tell you something. And every pastor just naturally does what they can to encourage church members to to get involved in serving God, that God has a purpose for you, a plan for you. He wants you to be involved in doing something, whatever it is. Thank God for for those that, you know, that are in our prayer ministry and working on that and those in the sound room and those uh, driving that van and bringing people to church. There's something for all of us to do. But I'll tell you, if the greatness of God's sacrifice doesn't motivate you to a life of sacrificial service, there nothing will. I could stand up here, Brother Kenneth, could stand up here and beg and plead with you, please get involved. The church needs your... No, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. Not until, until you consider what Jesus did for you. Paul said it right. And this has been my goal throughout these years. For to me, to live is Christ. And only then, only then can you say, and to die is gain. For to me, it can be something else for you, but for me to live is Christ. That's Philippians 1.21. It's so special to me. I even use it as the sign-in words on some of my stuff. Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ. You know, when the song says that he gave us something worth living for, I love love that. But let me tell you, he didn't just give us something worth living for. He gave us someone worth living for. And that someone's the one I've been talking to you about here this morning. That someone is Jesus, the Son of God. And pleasing him is, should be the most important thing in your life. The thing that motivates you to give your all to him. Because your attitude toward the cross affects the way you treat everybody else. My Bible says, think about it. Think about him hanging there in that situation. They're mocking him. Tearing his garments off of him. Answered not a word. Oh, he could have defended himself. He could have called down 10,000 angels. But yet he didn't. When he was praying there in the garden, and all of a sudden as he's in the garden with the disciples and there was the flickering of the torches and the, the hear people muttering some words and coming toward them and They had come to arrest him, to bring him to trial. 
And there they began to accuse him. And yet he answered not a word. And that same Jesus hanging there on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let me tell you, if we're going to live like Jesus, we're going to have to act like Jesus. And I'm telling you what, it's beyond your ability. It's beyond my ability. God has called us to a standard, and that standard is Jesus Christ. And the only way we can ever live as we ought to live, it's going to take a miracle. And the only way it can happen is for God to do it through us. And the only way He'll ever do it through you is for you to surrender yourself to Him. We sing, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like Him. Do you really mean that? If you want to be like Jesus, and that's what God wants for you, and if you want to be like Jesus, then it takes an act of surrender on your part. God, forgive me for being so unlike the one that died on the cross. And maybe if we Christians got more serious at a time like this when the invitation is given, just maybe some unsaved person sitting out there, and maybe they're thinking, well, I guess all of this stuff the preacher's saying must be serious. Maybe they'd start thinking about the need in their life. Because believe me, they'll use you and they'll use me and our failures as an excuse They'll say things like, oh, Christianity just for the weak and the odd and those that need a crutch to get through life. Oh, no, we need more than a crutch. We need an iron lung, a spiritual iron lung, someone to infuse us with life. And that's Jesus. That's what he wants for each and every one of us this morning. And the only question left is what are you going to do with this man called Jesus? Will you reject him? Will you receive Him? And we're going to give you that opportunity. As Brother David comes and the musicians and we stand together and sing this morning. Brother Kenneth will be here. If you're here today and you say, well, I, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a, a woman. I'd rather talk to a woman. We got, some, we got some godly women out here that would be glad to help you. Let's all stand, Father. I pray this morning that you'll use your word to bring about that which is the greatest desire of your heart for souls to be saved wherein you'll be glorified as a result. And I pray, Lord, that you'll remove every barrier, every hindrance. We know that Satan more than anything else wants to keep them blind to the truth more than anything else he wants to keep them pacified by the things of this world and I just pray Lord this morning that you'll tear down all of those obstacles and help each one of us to see ourselves like you see us and that we'll do whatever's necessary 
that we can walk out that door saying, for to me to live is Christ. That's what it's all about. God, may it be so this morning. But we beg it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing just now. The same.